Well, everyone loves a good TV show, right? I mean, who doesn't love a good TV show? Uh, my favorite right now is Person of Interest. You know, I DVR that every week, and I can't wait for it to come on and see how the plot develops each week. Well, do you ever think, what makes a good TV show? You know, I think it's good plot development, good character development, good actors and actresses. Then there's the execution of, uh, of the show, you know, with good camera angles. You've got to have good directors and tech support and all of that. You know, we all know what happens when there's a bad TV show. It's bad actors and bad plot development. We go, oh, man, that's really cheesy. And then the networks pull it after showing it one or two times. Well, National Geographic has decided that there's one additional element that makes up a good TV show with one of their new shows this fall. They're calling it an X Factor. Now, I'm not talking about this, the singing show with uh, Simon Cowell, though I, I like that one as well. The X Factor for them is something that's going to draw just many more people to watch their show and give them a wow factor. For them, their X Factor is Snakes. Is snakes. They've got a new show this fall called Snake Salvation. I'm not making this up. Yeah, I want to read from the website a description of this show, okay? In the hills of Appalachia, pastors Jamie Coots and Andrew Hamlin struggle to keep an over 100-year-old tradition alive, the practice of handling deadly snakes in the church. Jamie and Andrew believe in a Bible passage that suggests a poisonous snake bite will not harm them as long as they are anointed by God's power. If they don't practice the ritual of snake handling, they believe they are destined for hell. Hunting the surrounding mountains for deadly serpents and maintaining their, their church's snake collection is a way of life for both men. The pastors must frequently battle the law, a disapproving society, and even at times their own families to keep their way of life alive. Yeah, who wants to run out and set your DVRs for this new show? Interesting, huh? I mean, there are lots of problems with this that are probably going around in, in your minds. But some of you might have been wondering, what Bible passage are they referring to that would suggest such a thing? Well, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, we find Jesus supposedly saying these words, In my name, they will pick up snakes with their hands. Well, is this reason enough for us as a church to worship with snakes? Well, I thought I'd try it out with you. So our ushers are going to come forward with snakes here right now. So, no, no, we're not doing that. This passage has been debated for some time because these lines are, lines are found in a small number of manuscripts. In fact, it may say in your Bible that the earliest and most reliable uh, manuscripts do not even have these verses in them. And this passage has been debated because the passage that this line is in doesn't fit with Mark's style in the previous 16 chapters. And this is problematic because this practice isn't found anywhere else in the New Testament. That is, in fact, the biggest problem with the practice of snake handling. Besides the possibility of getting bitten and dying, right? Which happens, actually, with people that believe in this. The Bible simply doesn't say enough about it. And these pastors don't have a sufficient biblical basis for this practice. 
Now, now you and me, as people of the word, as people trying to live out God's word, we want to have a sufficient basis for our beliefs and our practice. So how do we make sure that this happens? Well, we pay attention to the Bible's context. We're in week three of a four-part series, a four-part campaign called AHA Moments, the joy of understanding the Bible. And we certainly hope that as you're going through this series, that you're finding out the joy of understanding the Bible more through your personal devotions to encounter with God, through your discussion of scriptural principles and scriptural passages in your community groups, through listening to the, the teaching on the weekends, and then just applying all of that to your lives. And so far during the weekend services, we've studied Jude and the historical setting in week one, Jonah and the literary setting in week two. And by the way, if you missed either of those, you can watch them. Uh, you can watch the messages uh, online on our website. And today we're studying First Thessalonians and the theological setting. So in order to do so, I want to encourage you to grab your Bible, whether you got a hard copy like this or it's on your, uh, your phone, and the outline in your weekly welcome, and I want you to take some notes, fill in the outline, because it's a proven point that if you fill in the blanks and you write things out, you're going to learn it more, you're going to remember it more, and you're going to apply it to life. And then you can take that outline to your community group so you can refer to uh, our messages each week. You also recognize that we've, uh, if you've read the chapter on this in, in Jim's book, Pastor Jim's book, Context, you'll recognize that we have stolen the outline right from his book. We've done that purposefully, so it's a reminder of those who've already read it, and it's a preview for those of you that haven't read the chapter yet. So today, we're going to explore one key interpretive principle, see it worked out from one passage of Scripture, and then identify some tools that will help us to do this on a regular basis as we're reading. Because we don't want this just to apply to your life over the next few hours or next few days. We want it to apply to your life and your understanding of Scripture over the next few years, over the next few decades. So the first point in your outline is the principle. The principle. Okay, This is not the leader of your kid's school. Simply stated, the principle for approaching the Bible with proper attention to its theological setting is this. Listen to this very carefully. The Bible must always agree with itself because it all comes from the same mind. Let me repeat that. The Bible must always agree with itself because it all comes from the same mind. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. All scripture is God-breathed. Now, in context here, what do you think the word all means? Yeah, all. That's not a trick question. It means all. All of it, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So according to this verse, God is the divine author of scripture. So what God says in one part of the Bible is not going to be out of sync or contradict with another part of the Bible. That's the theological setting or the context of the Bible. That's what we're talking about today. All right, back to our favorite new show, Snake Salvation. I know some of you have already set your DVRs on your Dish Network or AT&T apps. You're sick people. Uh, these verses, you know, um, these verses are reading a, a verse, or these guys, these pastors are reading one verse at the end of Mark like it's the only verse in the Bible. 
and they're developing an entire you know, belief practice, entire church on this, and clearly it's not. Now, interesting, there is another section in the Bible that talks about uh, a poisonous snake and a poisonous snake bite. In Acts, we read that Paul was bitten by a poisonous snake. Now, what happens there is that God protects Paul, and no harm comes to him. So you think, well, wait a second, if there's another passage, would that then allow us to, to practice you know, snake handling in the church? Because now there's two passages. Well, well, no, because in the section in Acts, in the passage in Acts, you know, Paul is, is probably handling snakes in the garden or something. I mean, he is not at all you know, taking a directive from Scripture in terms of worshiping God through the handling of snakes. And furthermore, the, the main purpose of that passage being there, the story being there, is to show God's hand of protection over Paul and how much he cares about him, how much he loves him and will look out for him. See, the the bigger consideration of all this snake handling business is that the rest of the Bible enjoins us to be wise, not foolish with respect to the gift of life, with respect to God's creatures and with the people we're called to lead. So the Bible in its parts and as a whole isn't for the practice of handling poisonous snakes in the church. Whew, some of you were getting a little worried there, weren't you? We're never going to be doing that here at Christ Community Church. But do you see what we've done? We've approached the Bible theologically, and we find that it's unified. We find that it's unified. And you could do the same thing with a whole bunch of other topics. You want to know what the Bible says about prayer, or hell, or baptism, or marriage, or money, or end times, or sex, or salvation, or family, or a whole host of other topics? Well, it's right there for you to learn. It's right there in Scripture. See, what we're getting at here is that we need to draw conclusions on the basis of what the Bible as a whole teaches. And we do that by letting the Bible interpret the Bible. Now, the best way to grasp this principle is to see it in practice. So, uh, I want to turn your attention to the second point in your outline. The first was the principle... And now the second is we're on to the example. What does this look like? Well, if you would, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in your Bible. As we've progressed through the AHA Moments campaign, we've been working in the weekend services to coordinate a chapter from Pastor Jim's book along with a context as well as the Bible passages we're reading in the devotional guide, Encounter with God. So in the first couple of weeks, uh, we looked back on one of our readings in our daily time, and today we're actually looking ahead at something we'll be reading, an example from a passage we'll be reading this coming week. So hopefully your Bible is open to 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'm going to read verses 13 to 18 for us. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So as you can see, this passage is talking about Jesus' second coming. In particular, a phrase here that's commonly called the rapture is what we're referring to. So how do we approach this passage which, with the sensitivity to its theological setting and understanding of it in that type of context? Well, this is where I've asked uh, our teaching pastors, uh, uh, Eric Ferris and Jameson Ross, to come alongside us and to help us. So uh, Eric Ferris has the more difficult job here because he's going to be presenting a pro-rapture perspective that he actually doesn't personally uh, aspire to, doesn't hold on to. And then Jameson Ross will be arguing against the rapture. Take a look. The rapture, in short, is the doctrine that holds that Jesus will return, but won't come all the way to earth. He'll come to sky level, and he'll take believers off the planet and take them back to heaven. This secretive return will occur just before the Great Tribulation begins. On that day, believers in Jesus will suddenly vanish from the earth. They will return with Jesus then at the end of that seven-year Great Tribulation, and at that time, Jesus will set up his kingdom. Now, this doctrine, which is a minority position among theologians and Bible scholars, and is pretty new, only a couple hundred years old, has held a lot of people captive and has been used to scare people pretty badly. Yeah, have you ever heard of rapture pranks? Now, this is brutal. Yeah, I've heard of a whole college dorm floor going in together to prank one person. Yeah, a group of 30 or 40 students picks one girl on their floor to be the object of the prank. Unbeknownst to her, they've organized a time in the middle of the night to set the stage. She's sleeping while they're organizing their disappearance. So she wakes up to the normal sounds of a dorm floor. She hears music and hair dryers and showers, but as she walks around, no one is using this stuff. The hair dryers are plugged in at the right place, but just kind of left sitting there. Toothbrushes have toothpaste on them just laying on the ground. Normal shower stuff, bars of soap, shampoo bottles, they're just sitting soaked in the shower on the floor. She finds clothes all throughout rooms and bathrooms, but it seems like people have vanished out of them because everything is stacked, just as you'd expect. Slippers, then socks, then pants, then underwear, and finally a shirt. So terrified, she asks, where is everybody? They've been raptured. You know, people get connected to this sort of thing. It has power. No one wants to be left behind because it would signal that we're not saved, and as a result, we'll have to endure God's judgment during this great tribulation. Now, this teaching has some basis in the Bible. So what texts lead to the rapture, this theological conclusion about Jesus' second coming? Okay, first of all, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 teaches the rapture. Paul says believers in Jesus will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Note, caught up. This two-word expression is translated rapture in a 4th century Latin version of the Bible. That's where we get the name of this doctrine. The name isn't important, but the concept is... Now, some people will try to tell you that because the word rapture only pops up once, that you can't build a whole doctrine on it. My simple response to that is that the word rapture doesn't need to occur a lot. The concept is in the Bible, and that's enough. In fact, I'll push this further. Some will say that if the rapture is taught, it's only taught here in this one text. I don't fully agree with that, but let's say for the sake of argument that they're right. 
does the Bible have to talk about something a lot for us to believe it or take it seriously? Of course not. If God's word says something, even just one thing about something, say the rapture, it's our responsibility to pay attention to it. 1 Thessalonians 4 teaches the rapture. That's sufficient. This passage tells us all we need to know about the rapture. In one sense, you can't say that 1 Thessalonians 4.17 doesn't teach the rapture because the words caught up and thus the translation rapture have to be dealt with in this passage. I'll address this phrase caught up in a moment, but before I do, let me respond to the bigger point. What does it mean for something to be biblical? Does a mention of a word or one verse provide a sufficient foundation for us to draw theological conclusions? This is the key issue when we're considering the theological setting of a passage we're reading. A rapturous hold that the clearest passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, is enough to draw theological conclusions. If this is correct, then this passage stands in contrast to an overwhelming number of passages in the Bible. You know, the rapture is presented as a two-stage event. Jesus will return secretly to rescue believers. They'll meet him in the clouds and return to heaven with him. Then later, Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. It's a two-stage return of Christ. But there are nearly 2,000 references throughout the Bible to Jesus' second coming, and they always speak of it as a one-time event. Remember the principle, the Bible agrees with itself because it all comes from the same mind, one mind, God's mind. This principle then leads to an interpretive practice. We use the Bible to interpret the Bible. If the Bible overwhelmingly presents Jesus' second coming as a one-time event, but we find a passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 that seems to introduce a pre-stage to this event, what do we do? Can we make sense of this rapture stuff in light of the Bible's teaching everywhere else? Yeah, we can. Now, Paul does say that believers are going to meet the Lord in the air and then be with the Lord forever. So doesn't this mean that Jesus is going to take his followers back to heaven only to return a second time, or I really should say a third time? No. Notice two key words in this passage. First, we've already seen the importance of the word translated as a phrase in English, caught up. There's no question that this phrase refers to believers being snatched away, but that question is that we have to ask, snatched away to what? That leads to the second important word, meet. Paul says we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, by the time that Paul is writing, this word was most often associated with a custom of sending a delegation outside the city to receive a dignitary who was on the way to town. So the leading citizens of this city would go out to meet the dignitary, and then they'd escort him back into the city. Now, with this in mind, Paul is saying that believers are snatched away. They're raptured to meet Jesus and escort him to earth. There's no mention here of going to heaven. In fact, this imagery points in the opposite direction. Jesus' one-time coming will be to set up his kingdom here on earth. It's certainly nice to hold firmly to a one-time second coming, and convenient, by the way, to say that there are nearly 2,000 texts and then not produce any of them. But Christ's return must be a two-stage event in the future because, as Jesus says, his return will come without warning. It'll be like a thief in the night. The rapture is the first stage, secret, thief-in-the-night-like. 
And the second stage of the return comes at the end of the seven years after the Great Tribulation. This seems rather obvious. The Bible clearly says that certain things must happen before Jesus returns. There will be wars, natural disasters, major persecution of Christians, tons of out-of-control wickedness, and the rise of antichrists. These things will be signs that the time of Jesus' return is getting closer. Also true is that Jesus talked about his return being a surprise, the whole thief-in-the-night deal. How can you have the return of Jesus be both a surprise and have lots of warning signs cluing us in that it's about to happen? A two-stage return makes sense of all of this. You have the surprise with the rapture while having plenty of time, the seven years of tribulation, for the unfolding of the horrific events, the signs, before Jesus returns to earth to set up his eternal kingdom. I have to admit that a two-stage return of Jesus does help to resolve an apparent contradiction at this point. But interestingly, that solution only works if you operate with the assumption that believers will experience the rapture. In other words, the clearest passage for the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, has already been shown on the one hand not to work as a rapture text, and on the other hand to affirm the one-time event view. So you take away this assumption of the rapture from this clearest text, and we're left just simply trying to make sense of how to reconcile Jesus' warning that his return is going to be swift and the fact that several things have to happen before he returns. Do certain things have to happen before Jesus returns, or could Jesus come back at any moment? Certain things, according to Scripture, will happen before Jesus returns, but that doesn't make this return any less swift. We affirm both. In the New Testament as a whole, authors discuss the current time, what we're living in, as part of the last days or end times. It's already started. So some of the things that we're anticipating in the Scriptures, wars, natural disasters, and everything else, have happened already. Those things that haven't happened yet, they will happen, and they'll happen soon. Now, the word imminent is important at this point. Jesus' second coming is often described as imminent, meaning soon rather than at any moment. Jesus will return imminently, soon, which leaves plenty of time for these events to transpire. Jesus can't come back in the next hour, in other words, because certain things will unfold. But his return will be soon. It'll be surprising. It will be like a thief in the night. Now, the second that Jesus' phrase, like a thief in the night, comes out of my mouth, I feel the need to add a point. You know, Rapturists will often use this phrase to substantiate not only the fact that there will be a two-stage return of Jesus, but that this phrase has a secret connotation to it. This first stage is secret, thief-in-the-night-like. This simply doesn't work. You know, think back for a moment to our key passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. Do you see anything there that seems secretive? I don't. This isn't a stealth operation, Jesus as Navy SEAL. It's the opposite. This is a visible and audible event. Verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Lord himself will come down. This phrase at the beginning of this verse points to a very visible image of Jesus descending, just as visibly as he ascended to heaven after the resurrection. Do you remember how the disciples stood staring up as Jesus ascended? It's visible. 
And so is the resurrection of deceased believers at the end of this verse and the catching up and meeting Jesus in the air in verse 17 that we've already looked at. This is going to be quite a sight, very visible. It's also going to be noisy. The voice of the archangel issues a loud command. This is accompanied by the trumpet call of God. A trumpet mixed with a loud voice isn't a strategic decision if you're trying to be sneaky or secretive. Jesus' second coming will happen as a one-time event, and it'll be public, both noisy and visible. Matthew chapter 24, in the context, where have I heard that before? Jesus is describing the coming of the Son of Man, and he says as clearly as possible, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, and the other left. Now, I'm not buying everything the authors of the Left Behind series put in their books. It's a fiction series based on the ideas found right here in Matthew 24. For instance, they famously described the rapture in such a way that Christian pilots would be taken in an instant from their plane seats, thus sending planes plummeting to the ground willy-nilly. This kind of thing is multiplied all throughout these books. But a fictional stretching by authors of a book series doesn't discredit the Bible or take away the language as found in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says, one will be taken and the other left. This idea with appropriate attention to context made it into a song in the 1970s by Larry Norman and was redone by the Christian band DC Talk. And they sing, two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. I'm not quoting those lines because they have authority, but because they capture the thrust of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 24. I think it's safe to say that the doctrine of the rapture, defined specifically as being left behind, should itself be left behind. Matthew 24 isn't talking about the rapture. Leaving the strange scenes from the books and even the emotionally gripping lyrics of the song to the side, we have to ask what is actually happening in Matthew 24. Again, by doing so, we're seeking to pay attention to the whole of Scripture rather than isolating bits and pieces that support our favorite conclusions. In the context, Jesus brings up the story of Noah by saying the following, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. The key question to ask in this instance is, who is Jesus referring to when he says that the flood came and, quote, took them all away? The answer this is referring to the people living around Noah when he's been building this ark in response to God's command. In other words, this passage flies in the face of rapture proponents. You'd expect the righteous people, in this case Noah and his family, to be taken away, raptured, because that would support the notion of a rapture. But it's actually the opposite. It's the wicked people who are taken away by the flood in judgment. On top of that, the rest of Matthew 24 as a whole details this sort of judgment for the wicked, and it aligns with what we find in other scriptures about this final judgment. There were three main biblical arguments for my position. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 talks about the rapture. Second, Jesus' phrase, thief in the night, 
helps us make sense of the surprise element involved. And third, Matthew chapter 24 talks about people being left behind. Now, even if I concede that these texts aren't talking about the rapture as the first stage of Jesus' two-part return, it still doesn't deal with a big emotional theological problem. Here's the problem. When we pay careful attention to the Bible's depiction of the future, it involves some really scary times of intense suffering. Holding to the rapture view rescues Christians from that agony. If you don't hold to that, then how can you make sense of God leaving Christians to endure the great tribulation? I don't believe God would put us through that. This response is wholly reasonable, and I think it's the reason for the strong attachment to this doctrine. Let me highlight an interesting observation, though, about this emotional issue in relation to the historical development of this doctrine. The doctrine of the rapture is a product primarily of the Western world, where Jesus' followers live in a comfortable environment. It's easy in an environment like this to crowd out the things that Jesus says about enduring difficulty or the Bible's whole witness about the suffering that believers in Jesus will face as a result of following him. Instead, we expect things to go pretty well for us, and this kind of expectation produces a problem-free Christian faith. You can see how an escapist doctrine of the rapture can grow up in that soil. But it's vital to realize that more than two-thirds of the world's Christians live in countries where persecution is a regular part of life. These believers aren't thinking about a future tribulation that's going to put them to the test. Instead, they're living through it as we speak. It doesn't do any good for us to think that we're going to be spared from this great tribulation, but it does a lot of good for us to heed Christ's warnings to be ready for that kind of persecution. Now, the wrath and judgment to be poured out on the wicked won't be poured out on Jesus' followers, those who have faith in him. God's wrath was satisfied on the cross, but we need to endure suffering for him still. We need to be prepared for it. You know, Paul's point in 1 Thessalonians 4 and we could add the entire theological context of the Bible in at this point, is to hold out the glorious hope of Jesus' second coming, which is a comfort for us now and the motivation for our mission currently in the world. As we reflect on what these guys have just done in the example, I want to highlight something that underscores today's main point. It's extremely important, extremely important that we don't isolate bits and pieces of the Bible and use them as a foundation for our theological conclusions. I hope you're picking up on that. In fact, the, the thing that Pastor Eric Ferris was intentionally doing wrong was that he wasn't reading those phrases or verses in the context of their sentences, of their paragraphs, chapters, books, or of the Bible as a whole. And that's what Pastor Jameson kept pointing out over and over again. See, the immediate setting, which we're going to be exploring next week, helps us to understand the specific passage we're reading so that then we can connect it with the other passages on that topic across the entire Bible. So again, when we're reading the Bible, because we want to understand it, we want to understand who God is and how to apply it to our life, we need to pay close attention to what the whole of Scripture is saying on a particular topic, on whatever it is we're studying. So in order to do that, as we've said like 20 times already today, we must use the Bible to interpret the Bible. 
But that raises a question. How do we do that? How do we use the Bible to interpret the Bible? How do I find passages that talk about the same thing? And when I do, how do I interpret them so I know that they're being evaluated and properly used in context? Well, thankfully, we've got some tools that are available to us as Christ followers to help us understand God's word. So we've covered the principle first, second, the example, and lastly, in your outlay, you can, you can fill in there the tools. Our third point is the tools. And there's going to be four tools I want to talk about briefly, but make sure if you haven't already, read Pastor Jim's book, Context. There's a chapter on this. In the chapter, you can read more about each of these tools. But uh, the first tool is most often provided for you the margin of your Bible or sometimes in the middle between uh, two columns. It's called the cross-reference. Cross-reference does not relate to uh, Jesus dying on the cross. Rather, it's looking at crisscrossing across the Bible, looking across all of Scripture to find what the Bible talks about in particular topics. So as you're reading along your Bible, you'll probably happen upon some sections or phrases, and you go, well, what does that mean? Or wonder what, uh, how that relates to everything. It may seem confusing. You may want to shed a little more light on that topic. Well, the editors have had that same type of thought, and so they've put in, they've helped you out with some clues into other parts of the Bible that address a similar theme or topic or question. So if you look at the small symbol, most often, in most cases, it's a letter that corresponds with your cross-references, you'll find some passages to look up. So in the passage of today, 1 Thessalonians 4, you'll see a small G about halfway through the verse. Well, that G refers us to Acts 1-9, and we recognize then that Acts 1-9 has something to contribute to our understanding of the clouds that Paul is mentioning here. Now, this is one of the passages that uh, Jameson referred to earlier. And in Acts 1-9, we learn that Jesus ascended visibly. And that pal passage helps us to understand that his return, which is described here in 1 Thessalonians 4, will also be visible. See, your cross-reference can really help you out. Second tool is a concordance. At the back of your Bible... You know, there's a glossary of sorts, alphabetical listing of a lot of different topics that are covered in Scripture. So if you want to find out something about, say, marriage, you look under the M's and you'd find marriage. And then there might be some variations of the word, might be Mary, Mary's, marriage. And you can then read all the passages in Scripture that pertain to marriage and find out more about it. Third tool is the NIV Study Bible. I know we reference this a lot, but it's just a fantastic tool because it's got an introduction to each of the books of the Bible, help you put everything in context and, and know more about it. And then it's got some incredibly helpful footnotes at the bottom of each page. So when you come across something, you want to find out more about a particular word, you can go down to the footnotes and more often than not, there's something that there about that. There's also an NIV study Bible for uh, those of you with smartphones, and you can highlight and take notes and do all those things right there as well. So a couple of options of that. And finally, the fourth tool is a systematic theology. A systematic theology book does, does just what we've described. It's got a, you know, broken down into topics or systems of scripture, and it's typically a book that just ends up being on your bookshelf. It's not you know, one that you typically would read you know, from the front cover to the back cover, but when you want to learn about baptism, you pull that off the shelf and you read a section on baptism, and you see not only what scripture says, but what some, um, you know, what some 
scholars say on that particular topic. Uh, we recommend Wayne Grudem's systematic theology uh, for uh, various reasons, but very easy to understand. He puts it in terms that all of us can appreciate. All right, as we close today, I want to briefly mention two final things. The first is, if you have not hooked up yet with uh, Pastor Jim's blog, Bible Savvy, let me encourage you to, to do so. I am so glad that he's now in the blogosphere and a couple of times a week allows us to get more insights into our daily reading from our senior pastor. This week in particular, I encourage you to go to it because he's going to be expounding on 1 Thessalonians 4 and the rapture. So be sure to uh, head to Bible Savvy and Jim's blog. And second, you know, this emphasis on the theological setting of Scripture is intended to help us become good Bible readers so we can get to know God better. You know, this stuff isn't unrelated to life, which is often what we think about. We think, oh, theology, oh, that's way too scary. That's just for, for scholars or so, for somebody other than me. Instead, this is related to everything. It's related to all of our life. Our theology determines who we are. Pastor Jameson said earlier that two-thirds of the world's Christians are currently suffering persecution. Did you hear that? Let that sink in for a minute. Two-thirds of people around the world that believe just what you and I believe are being persecuted today. And we can certainly all agree that believers in Pakistan and in Kenya suffering through persecution, they need Paul's message of hope that we've read about from 1 Thessalonians 4. And they need our prayers right now. So if you haven't done so already, please put the persecuted church on your prayer list. You can find out more on persecution.com as well. Uh, see, our theological, gra theological grasp of the Bible, specifically that believers in Jesus will face suffering and, and that God is aware of our needs and that God hears our prayers, it leads us to a life-changing conclusion. A life-changing conclusion. As we pray for believers around the world, God responds. God hears our prayers. And he, as the almighty God, responds on their behalf. And you see, we're assured in the scriptures, the whole of scripture, that God knows these needs and responds to our praying. So this not only highlights our need to pray, but it also reminds us that when we do, we connect with God Almighty himself because of what Jesus has done for us and what God's spirit does as we pray. That, my friends, is incredible. And that is theology. With that in mind, would you bow with me as we close in prayer of this section? God, as we close in prayer... I do want to lift up the persecuted church. And I am so thankful to be in a church today where we can worship you freely. We can praise you as the almighty God and as our Savior and Lord. Where we can open up your scriptures to understand them more as a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. But God, we don't want to take that for granted. And we just pray for those around the world. And we confess that too often we don't pray for them. But we pray right now you give them encouragement, you give them peace, you give them the ability to feel your everlasting arms wrapped around them and allow them to rely on your word as a rock in their life. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.